Chapter Four, Part Two of the American Credo by H. L. Mencken and George Jean Nathan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Meanwhile, however, it is certainly not going too far to notice the circumstance that there is an irreconcilable antithesis between the two sorts of men that we have described, that a great moral passion is fatal to the gentler and more caressing amenities of life and vice versa. The man of morals has a certain character, and the man of honour has a quite different character. No one, not an idiot, fails to differentiate between the two, or to order his intercourse with them upon an assumption of their disparity. What we know in the United States as Presbyterian is preeminently of the moral type. Perhaps more than any other man among us, he regulates his life and the lives of all who fall under his influence upon a purely moral plan. In the main, he gets the principles underlying that plan from the Old Testament. If he is to be described succinctly, it is as one who carries over into the modern life, with its superior complexity of sin, the simple and rigid ethical concepts of the ancient Jews. And in particular, he subscribes to their theory that it is virtuous to make things hot for the sinner, by which word he designates any person whose conduct violates the ordinances of God as he himself is aware of them and interprets them. Sin is, to the Presbyterian, the salient phenomenon of this wobbling and nefarious world, and the pursuit and chastisement of sinners the one avocation that is permanently worthwhile. The product of that simple doctrine is a character of no little vigor and austerity, and one much esteemed by the great masses of men, who are always uneasily conscious of their own weakness in the face of temptation, and thus have a sneaking veneration for the man apparently firm, and who are always ready to believe, furthermore, that any man who seems to be having a pleasant time is a rascal and deserving of the fire. The Presbyterian likewise harbors this latter suspicion. More, he commonly erects it into a certainty. Every single human act, he holds, must be either right or wrong, and the overwhelming majority of them are wrong. He knows exactly what these wrong ones are, he recognizes them instantly and infallibly, by a sort of inspired intuition, and he believes that they should all be punished automatically and with the utmost severity. No one ever heard of a Presbyterian overlooking a fault or pleading for mercy for the erring. He would regard such an act as the weakness of one ridden by the devil. From such harsh judgments and retributions, it must be added in fairness, he does not accept himself. He detects his own aberration almost as quickly as he detects the aberration of the other fellow, and though he may sometimes seek, being, after all, human, to escape its consequences, he by no means condones it. Nothing, indeed, could exceed the mental anguish of a Presbyterian who has been betrayed by the foul arts of some lascivious wench into any form of adultery, or, by the treason of his senses in some other way, into a voluptuous yielding to the lure of the other beaux-arts. It has been our fortune, at various times, to be in the confidence of Presbyterians thus seduced from their native virtue, and we bear willing testimony to their sincere horror. Even the least pious of them was as greatly shaken up by what to us, on our lower plane, seemed a mere peccadillo, perhaps in bad taste, but certainly not worth getting into a sweat about, as we ourselves would have been by a gross breach of faith. But, as has been before remarked, the bitter must go with the sweet. In the face of so exalted a moral passion, it would be absurd to look for that urbane habit which seeks the well-being of one's self and the other fellow, not an exact obedience to harsh statutes, but an ease, dignity, and the more delicate sort of self-respect. 
that is to say it would be absurd to ask a thoroughly moral man to be also a man of honour the two in fact are eternal enemies their endless struggle achieves that happy mean of philosophies which we call civilization the man of morals keeps order in the world regimenting its lawless hordes and organizing its governments the man of honour mellows and embellishes what is thus achieved giving to duty the aspect of a privilege and making human intercourse a thing of fine faiths and understandings we trust the former to do what is righteous we trust the latter to do what is seemly it is seldom that a man can do both the man of honour inevitably exalts the punctilio above the law of god one may trust him if he has eaten one's salt to respect one's daughter as he would his own but if he happens to be under no such special obligation it may be hazardous to trust him with even one's charwoman or one's mother-in-law and the man of morals confronted by a moral situation is usually wholly without honour put him on the stand to testify against a woman and he will tell all he knows about her even including what he has learned in the purple privacy of her boudoir more he will not tell it reluctantly shamefacedly apologetically but proudly and willingly in response to his high sense of moral duty it is simply impossible for such a man to lie like a gentleman he lies of course like all of us and perhaps more often than most of us on the other side but he does it not to protect sinners from the moral law but to make their punishment under the moral law more certain swift facile and spectacular by this long route we get to our apologia for dr wilson a man from whom we both differ in politics in theology in ethics and in epistemology but one whose great gifts particularly for moral endeavour in the grand manner excite our sincere admiration both his foes and his friends it seems to us do him a good deal of injustice the former carried away by that sense of unlikeness which lies at the bottom of most of the prejudices of uncritical men denounce him out of hand because he is not as they are a good many of these foes of course are not actually men of honour themselves some of them in fact belong to sects and professions for example that of intellectual socialist and that of member of congress in which no authentic man of honour could imaginably have a place but it may be accurately said of them nevertheless that if actual honour is not in them then at least they have something of the manner of honour that they are moving in the direction of honour though not yet arrived few men indeed may be said to belong certainly and irrevocably in either category that of the men of honour or that of the men of morals dr wilson perhaps is one such man he is as palpably and exclusively a man of morals as say george washington was a man of honour he is in the one category a great beacon burning almost blindingly he is in the other no more than a tallow dip guttering asthmatically but the majority of men occupy a sort of twilight zone and the most that may be said of them is that their faces turn this way or that such is the case with dr wilson's chief foes their eyes are upon honour as upon some new and superlatively sweet enchantment and bemused to starboard they view the scene to port with somewhat extravagant biliousness thus when they contemplate his excellency's long and perhaps unmatchable series of violations of his troth in the matter of keeping us out of the war in the matter of his solemn promises to china in the matter of his statements of war aims and purposes in the matter of his shifty dealings with the russian question in the matter of his repudiation of the armistice terms offered to the germans in the matter of his stupendous lying to the senate committee on foreign relations and so on ad infinitum 
when they contemplate all that series of evasions dodgings hypocrisies double dealings and plain mendacities they succumb to an indignation that is still more than half moral and denounce him bitterly as a pecksniff a tartuffe and a pinto in that judgment as we shall show there is not save a stupid incapacity to understand an unlike man in brief no more than the dunderheadedness which makes a german regard every englishman as a snuffling poltroon hiding behind his vassals and causes an englishman to look upon every german as a fiend in human form up to his hips in blood but one expects a man's foes to misjudge him and even to libel him deliberately a good deal of their enmity in fact is often no more than a product of their uneasy consciousness that they have dealt unfairly with him one is always most bitter not toward the author of one's wrongs but toward the victim of one's wrongs unluckily dr wilson's friends have had at him even more cruelly when seeking to defend what they regard as his honour they account for his incessant violation of his pledges to the voters in nineteen sixteen to the soldiers drafted for the war to the chinese on their entrance to the austrians when he sought to get them out to the germans when he offered them his fourteen points to the country in the matter of secret diplomacy when his friends attempt to explain his cavalier repudiation of all these pledges on the ground that he could not have kept them without violating later pledges they achieve of course only an imbecility obvious and damning for it must be plain that no man is permitted in honour to make antagonistic engagements or to urge his private tranquillity or even the public welfare as an excuse for changing their terms without the consent of the parties of the second part a man of honour is one who simply does whatever he says he will do provided the other party holds to the compact too one cannot imagine him shifting trimming and making excuses it is his peculiar mark that he never makes excuses that the need of making them would fill him with unbearable humiliation the moment a man of honour faces the question of his honour he is done for it can no more stand investigation than the chastity of a woman can stand investigation in such a character dr wilson would have been bound irrevocably by all his long series of solemn engagements from the first to the last without the slightest possibility of dotting an eye or of cutting off the tail of a comma it would have been as impossible for him to have repudiated a single one of them at the desire of his friends or in the interest of his idealistic enterprises as it would have been for him to have repudiated it to his own private profit but here is where both foes and friends go aground both attempt to inject concepts of honour into transactions predominatingly and perhaps exclusively coloured by concepts of morals the two things are quite distinct as the two sorts of men are quite distinct beside the obligation of honour there is the obligation of morals entirely independent and often directly antagonistic and beside the man who yields to the punctilio the man of honour the man who keeps his word there is the man who submits himself regardless of his personal engagements and the penalties that go therewith to the clarion call of the moral law dr wilson is such a man he is as has been remarked a presbyterian a calvinist a militant moralist in that hrol devoted to that high cause clad in that white garment he was purged of all obligations of honour to any merely earthly power his one obligation was to the moral law in brief to the ordinance of god as determined by christian pastors under that moral law specifically he was charged to search out and determine its violations by the accused in the dock 
to wit by the german nation according to the teaching of those pastors and the light within and to fix and execute a punishment that should be swift terrible and overwhelming to this business it must be granted by even his most extravagant opponents he addressed himself with the loftiest resolution and singleness of purpose excluding all puerile questions of ways and means he was by the moral law no more bound to take into account the process whereby the accused was brought to book and the weight of retribution brought to bear than a detective is bound to remember how any ordinary prisoner is snared for the mill of justice the detective himself may have been an important factor in that process he may have taken the prisoner by some stratagem involving the most gross false pretenses he may have even played the agent provocateur and so actually suggested planned and supervised the crime but surely that would be a ridiculous critic who would argue thereby that the detective should forthwith forget the law violated and the punishment justly provided for it and go over to the side of the defence on the ground that his dealings with the prisoner involved him in obligations of honour the world would laugh at such a moral moron if it did not actually destroy him as an enemy of society it recognises the two codes that we have described and it knows that they are antagonistic it expects a man sworn to the service of morality to discharge his duty at any cost to his honour just as it expects a man publicly devoted to honour to keep his word at any cost to his or to the public morals moreover it inclines when there is a conflict toward the side of morals the overwhelming majority of men are men of morals not men of honour they believe that it is vastly more important that the guilty should be detected taken into custody and exposed to the rigour of the law than that the honour of this or that man should be preserved in truth there are frequent circumstances under which they positively esteem a man who thus sacrifices his honour or even their own honour a man of dishonour may actually take on the character of a public hero thus in nineteen o three when the late major-general roosevelt then president tore up the treaty of eighteen forty six whereby the united states guaranteed the sovereignty of columbia in the isthmus of panama the great masses of the american plain people not only at once condoned this grave breach of honour but actually applauded dr roosevelt because his act furthered the great moral enterprise of digging the canal these distinctions of course are familiar to all men who devote themselves to the study of the human psyche that morals and honour are not one and the same thing but two very distinct and even antithetical things is surely no news to the judicious but what is thus merely an axiom of ethics politics or psychology is often kept strangely secret in the united states we have acquired the habit of evading all the facts of life save those that are most superficial by long disuse we have almost lost the capacity for thinking analytically and accurately a thing may be universally known among us and yet never get itself so much as mentioned around scores of elementary platitudes there hangs a shuddering silence as complete as that which hedges in the sacred name of a polynesian chief at every election time in our large cities most of the fundamental issues are concealed particularly when they happen to take on a theological colour which is very often it is for example the timorous public theory born of this fear of the forthright fact that when a man sets up as a candidate for say a judgeship the question of his private religious faith is of no practical importance that it makes no difference whether he is a catholic or a methodist 
the truth is of course that his faith is often of the very first importance that it will colour his conduct of the forensic combats before him even more than his politics his capacity to digest proteids or the social aspirations of his wife one constantly notes in american jurisprudence the effects of theological prejudices on the bench there are at least a dozen controlling decisions covering especially the new moral legislation which might almost be mistaken by a layman for sermons by the reverend dr billy sunday the prohibitionists during their long and very adroit campaign shrewdly recognized the importance of controlling the judiciary in particular they threw all their power against the election of candidates who were known to be catholics or jews or free thinkers as a result they packed the bench of nearly every state with methodist baptist and presbyterian judges and these gentlemen at once upheld all their maze of outrageous statutes that they would do so if elected was known in advance and yet so far as the record shows it was a rare thing for any one to attack them on the ground of their religion and rarer still for any such attack to influence many votes the taboo was working the majority of voters were eager to avoid that issue they felt in some vague and unintelligible way that it was improper to raise it so with all other primary issues there is certainly no country in the world in which the marriage relation is discussed more copiously than in the united states and yet there is no country in which its essentials are more diligently avoided some years ago seeking to let some sagacity into the prevailing exchange of platitudes one of us wrote a book upon the subject grounding it upon the obvious doctrine that women have much more to gain by marriage than men and that the majority of men are aware of it and would never marry at all if it were not for women's relentless efforts to bring them to it this banality the writer supported by dint of great painstaking in a somewhat novel way that is to say he put upon himself the limitation of employing no theory statement of fact or argument in the book that was not already embodied in a common proverb in some civilized language now and then it was a bit hard to find the proverb but in most cases it was very easy and in some cases he found not one but dozens well this laborious pastiche of the obvious made such a sensation that it sold better than any other book that the author had ever written and the reviews unanimously described it either with praise or with blame as an extraordinary collection of heresies most of them almost too acrid to be bruited about in other words this mass of platitudes took americans by surprise and somehow shocked them what was commonplace to even the peasants of the european continent was so unfamiliar to even the literate minority over here that the book acquired a sort of sinister repute and the writer himself came to be discussed as a fellow with the habit of arising in decorous society and indelicately blowing his nose there is of course something of the same shrinking from the elemental facts of life in england it seems to run with the anglo-saxon this accounts for the shuddering attitude of the english to such platitude-monging foreigners as george bernard shaw the scotsman disguised as an irishman and g k chesterton who shows all the physical and mental stigmata of a bavarian shaw's plays which once had all england by the ears were set down as compendiums of the self-evident by the french a realistic and plain-spoken people and were sniffed at in germany by all save the middle classes who corresponded to the intelligentsia of anglo-saxondom but in america even more than in england they were viewed as genuinely satanic we shall never forget indeed the tremulous manner in which american audiences first listened to the feeble rattling of the palpable in such pieces as 
man and superman, and you never can tell. It was precisely the manner of an old maid devouring what every girl of forty-five should know behind the door. As for Chesterton, his banal arguments in favor of alcohol shocked the country so greatly that his previous high services to religious superstition were forgotten, and today he is seldom mentioned by respectable Americans. End of chapter 4, part 2